0: Welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's Politics Podcast. I am your host, Emma Graney, and this is the ABCs edition or the Cs for curriculum edition. So today, with me, Stuart Thompson. Hello. How are you?
1: Fantastic. How are you doing?
0: I'm pretty all right. (laughs) (laughs) Paula Simons. Hello, Emma. Hello. And Graham Thompson. Good morning. So today we're going to be talking about the politicization of Alberta's curriculum review and we'll also take a look at money that the NDP government is spending on environmental education programs and of course with their whole carbon tax promotion and we'll take a brief look at the incident at Elk Island Child and Youth Ranch over the weekend and the political fallout from that. So let's first of all turn to the curriculum review. Now this is something that's come up in the past, during session, uh, we've had a Wild Rose kind of coming up many times and saying, Tell us who's on this curriculum review panel, make the names public, we deserve to know, kind of thing. And that happened a lot during session. And now it turns out that our colleague Janet French actually spoke with some of those folks who are doing the curriculum review. So what are the big concerns here that these people who are reviewing the curriculum?
1: Well, I think that they are feeling like they don't want to be political actors in, you know, I, I, I think probably what you have here, I think it's 300 people that are involved in the curriculum review. And I think they are probably, if I were guessing, very earnest teacher types who genuinely want to put together a good curriculum and a lot of them are teachers because the point is they're the ones that have to deal with this every day so they're good people to have involved in the process. Um, The Wild Rose, I, I think their contention is that what what the government wants to do here is they want to create an um, army of NDP bots in the schools. <laughs> and Children bots. <laughs> indoctrinate them with, you know, NDP socialist uh, rhetoric. And, uh, and I think this has been an accusation of every government who's ever done a curriculum review because I think that is always the fear of the party on the other side of the ideological spectrum. Um, so they've been saying, we just want to know who is actually taking part in this review. And... Perhaps you know, as a biased journalist, I don't think that's a. I, I don't. I don't see any real problem with that request. I, I think if the names are out there, that's fine. I don't think there's going to be any real political blowback. Oh. Uh, maybe somebody else could. Disagree with me. Uh, I
2: dis- I'm, going, I dis- I'm I dis- going to agree with Paul before she says anything. <laughs> <laughs> that, I, I, know where, I know where you're headed. Then, this, Paula, so I agree. Go ahead.
0: But social media is such a lovely place, and everyone gets along so well these this days. This is
2: the oh, problem. Yeah. 15,
0: Fifteen years ago, I would have agreed with you, young Stuart. Fifteen years ago,
3: I would have said that these are the people who are charged with the task of shaping young minds, and that we should be able to, you know, know who they are. The problem is that in this day of trollery on social media, I legitimately fear for some of those people because some of the partisans on this issue are completely unreasonable to the point of being very unnerving. And I think if I were a mild mannered math curriculum person, not that I'm assuming that all mathematicians are mild mannered, um, you know, I would not want to be in the crosshairs of an Ezra Levant rebel-led social media crusade out to get me for doing my job trying to do an impartial curriculum review. Stewart's right these things are always political. I mean, I remember when Jeff Johnson was education minister in the last government, uh, and he wanted to add entrepreneurship as a core value to everything that we taught in our schools. I mean, governments have a long and unfortunate tendency of wanting to impose whatever their doctrine de jour is. But most of this curriculum rewrite has nothing to do with partisan politics. And I mean, I think the people who are the, you know, the the professionals doing the work don't deserve to to be put in the stocks and, in, and and pilloried on social media for doing their jobs. In a way,
0: I think David Egan, the education minister, in a way, he kind of brought this on himself a little bit when he said that they want to make students agents of change. That was an incredibly unfortunate term to use when it came to the curriculum. Yeah,
2: I think people are jumping on that maybe uh, too, too much.
0: Absolutely. They've taken that and Absolutely. run with it. But just
2: it. going back to this idea, and I agree with Paul, what Paul is saying, because there's the idea that I want to see the names because it's going to become, this is a wild rose. it's going to become a, an ad hominem attack on these people. You know, they'll, they'll find somebody, Ah, this person's been an NDP member for the last 20 years and a teacher, and that, therefore this person, of course, has an agenda. So they'll be attacking the people as opposed to the ideas of the curriculum. And that's what I'm afraid of as well. We're seeing it a lot more on social media, but this is still something people tend to do when it comes to climate change and things like that. They attack the person making the argument as opposed to attacking the argument. And I think that that's a fear as well. And I, yeah, you're right, uh, Egan uh, stepped in it when he made that comment. But uh, I agree with both my colleagues, except for the idea of we should put the names out there. And normally I'm all for transparency and openness, but in this case, it would sidetrack the whole debate, I think.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think um, it, it is interesting how these things go down because the agents of change thing it made me think back to my schooling and my high school and stuff like that and i i was watching our um our esteemed colleague david staples arguing about this and he's very much on the other side no political you know uh no political language in the curriculum and jason kenny was kind of saying the same thing and when i think about the term entrepreneurial spirit which is what the pcs wanted in there that, to me, isn't necessarily political. Entrepreneurial spirit is generally something you say to praise someone, like they've got some get-up-and-go. Yeah, well, it's not that's, something
3: you say in a right-of-center context.
1: Well, like, oh, I
2: wouldn't necessarily disagree. I'm going to jump in and say, that again, <laughs> Paul is right. You look back to the, the context, back uh, under the PCs. They wanted the, um, any post-secondary to be aimed at a more technical target to get people employed. So if you go to post-secondary, it was actually it, it was it was to be trained <laughs> in a certain area, right? As opposed to the liberal arts, of course, which don't actually maybe train you for a particular skill, except for maybe critical thinking. But there was that sense. We hope with was that sense under the PCs that it was all geared towards making people like little um, cogs in a machine. When, when you, know, you, you go to university, only to get a job in engineering, or in fact, they began trying to change the whole system under uh, Lukasik and and focus it in that direction.
1: Yeah, let me try and articulate this a little bit better. Um, (laughs) whatever, Whatever you're trying to do with the curriculum is inherently political because you have ideas of what a curriculum should do and that may be different from somebody else's. So I think there's going to be some kind of political slant on this anyways but I think the things we're jumping on the idea that And what I was going to say about uh, what uh, David Staples was saying is that his idea of education, the way it comes across to me, is really depressing. It's like kids sitting in a classroom doing multiplication tables. And there's no kind of like... um, Spirit to it. And I think that spirit comes from what I kind of got in high school from some of my better teachers, which was that they had some political thoughts and they weren't afraid to say them. And whether they were... I had an economic teacher who was definitely pretty right wing, and it turned into some great debates. And I had a teacher in history who was pretty left wing, and that turned into some great debates. I think that they seem to think politicians anyways seem to think it's easier to indoctrinate kids than it actually is. And I don't think we should be, uh, I don't think we should be afraid of having the idea of if you want to be an agent of change, maybe that's a positive thing. Maybe that's a negative thing, but here's how that would look in society. I think sometimes we, inflate these things to more than what they really are and the idea of agent of change i think it's not the primary motive of the curriculum to do that
3: i don't want my curriculum to teach kids to be entrepreneurs or to be social justice warriors i would like to teach them to be critical thinkers as graham says and as i think stewart is saying you know to give kids the critical thinking apparatus our curriculum is so out of date i've talked about this before that you know our social studies curriculum. Is sort of predicated as though the Cold War is still going on, um, is it? Though, well, alone? I mean, I guess maybe, maybe, maybe everything old is new again. By the time we get the curriculum rewritten, maybe, <laughs> maybe you know, we'll need to be thinking about Russia in a whole new way again. But you know, the, the curriculum is stale and it needs updating. And I frankly think. Um, Ironically, under the Tories, um, I think the social studies curriculum drifted way too far away from history and spent way too much time concentrating on sort of social theory unmoored from any kind of pragmatic reality. Uh, So absolutely, by all means, hold governments accountable for the way they change curriculum. Hold ministers and deputy ministers accountable. But to put the names of 300 teachers doing the grunt work out there so that they can play, you know, they can be pin the tail on the donkey targets, uh, I think is grotesquely unfair. And why would anybody sign up to do curriculum review if they knew that they were going to be shopped out that way?
0: I'm coming from a perspective of a former education reporter. I was an education reporter in Saskatchewan for a couple of years. And also, my mum was a teacher for 40 years. And Teachers can kind of pick and choose what bits they want to do anyways. I think this is a fundamental misunderstanding of curriculums in general. You do not get a set of instructions as to how you have to apply them to your classroom. Very broad principles that you can kind of pick and choose from, make them work for your class. So even by redesigning a curriculum and freshening it up to be more modern, it still is not going to dictate what teachers do in classrooms because teachers have the best idea, I think, of what their classes are able to learn and the way in which to teach them. So you're not going to, even by changing curriculum, whether or not you know those names, it's not going to make really uh, that much difference, I don't think. Because teachers will make that decision yeah. in the end. Right. Well, best Teacher, for kids. Teachers are pretty pragmatic. I mean, remember when teachers were told,
3: don't teach phonics anymore. Never teach children to sound out the words. And smart teachers just went on teaching phonics yeah. because that is, in fact, really the best way to teach most people to read.
0: Uh, you know, Yeah, good teachers will keep on teaching good. really well.
3: And, you know, when, and when they tell you, you know, teach math in this way that nobody can understand, most teachers just go on giving you math minutes anyway. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I think we do have to be watchful because I think sometimes there are fashions and fads in Mm. education that that sweep through universities, and everybody says, Oh, you know, we must adopt this you know, slightly space age model. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm old enough that, you know, I remember when uh, they decided that classrooms with walls were a bad thing, and everything should be an open classroom, and it should all be child directed learning. And I distinctly remember in third grade, when it was all child directed learning, we were all allowed to learn at our own pace. And so I read books the whole year and got myself up to a junior high reading level and did no math Whatsoever, <laughs> so you know, uh, sounds like a solid, a, a solid year, sol- a solid decision I made when I was eight that continues to haunt <laughs> me to this day. So you know, I, I think that we do have to be on our guard for for fads in yes. educationism, which you know g- can can derail things. But I, I think that the idea that we should somehow uh, put these these. You know, foot soldiers of curriculum redevelopment out there uh, instead of taking our concerns where they properly belong to the accountable elected leaders is
0: is misguided. I actually did a story in Saskatchewan when they were redeveloping a bit of the uh, science curriculum and it was really interesting. I went in and they had these giant boards and big workshopping things and they had all these different ideas and themes they were going to teach and what was good, what was bad and they were all fine having their name in the paper but it hadn't been politicised there like it has been here because it wasn't an overall review what they tend to do in Saskatchewan was every now and again they would review the curriculum called evergreening the curriculum, which seems like a way better idea of going about it rather than just taking one sweeping shot at it every fifty years. You know, keep it keep, keep it changing as it, as as you need to do. So this kind of leads to another issue that came up this week, Graham, about <laughs> <laughs> you talking like, to you're talking to me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Go <a> ahead, punk.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, about money that the NDP are going to be spending to teach environmental programs in schools. Now, this was also a very unpopular thing. The uh, Wild Rose set in particular were extremely irate. I saw a couple of tweets from Brian Jean, very anti this idea. Graham, what are they planning to do here? Well, this
2: is, uh, first of all, it's called the uh, Community Environment Action Grants. They're not for the schools. Uh, There was some report saying it's for schools. It's not.
0: It's lucky you're here, Graham.
2: (laughs) Yes. Are you feeling lucky? I, I've often <laughs> said that. So this is um, $600,000 being given out in grants by the government to various community groups. It could be Indigenous groups. It could be, um, is it the Earth Rangers? There's a, a group up there. Oh, my God. Is
0: that like the Power Rangers?
2: Yes, exactly. Awesome. It is, yes. So it's is, is to get um, community groups to start thinking about um, climate change and also to find ways to um, educate the public about climate change, the science of man-made climate change, $600,000. And the opposition has jumped on it, saying this is just the government spending more money on propaganda. Now, the government already has $9 million set aside to promote its climate leadership plan, mm-hmm. the carbon tax.
0: That's the ads and stuff,
3: right? The ads
2: you see in... Uh,
3: which is far more problematic to me than this. Well,
2: that's just it, right? So, so, so that $9 million, is, is, yes, it's for propaganda. This is the government trying to sell its carbon tax to people. Now, yes. the $600,000 on public education dealing with the basics of climate change. That, to me, is worthwhile spending. That's to educate people about science. That's not propaganda. That's education on science. So the opposition is trying to conflate the two and saying it's $9.6 million now on the government's propaganda for the carbon tax. Two different things. And I've written about this. The money spent on education to me is a good thing because we're seeing a lot of pushback from groups that don't believe in climate change. We're seeing in the U.S. a president that doesn't believe in climate change. He calls it a hoax invented by the Chinese. You've got right now a a debate among, um, not a debate, you've got uh, some members of Congress in the U.S. that are bringing up a new report regarding the um, National Oceanic an atmospheric administration in the U.S., a, a report showing, the fact, that climate change is continuing, that there was no pause. A big debate uh, over some of the archiving of that information. It's a scientific, technical debate. The Republicans jumping on it saying, aha, even scientists can't agree on climate change. Well, no, the scientists agree on climate change is actually happening. They can't agree sometimes on how the, the data is handled. Anyway, so my point is, a lot of misinformation out there. And to me, it makes sense for the government to spend money just to educate people on the basics. Now, when you have climate change, man-made climate change, the question then becomes, how do you deal with it? That's a public policy issue. The NDP says, bring in a carbon tax. Now, you can argue against that, no problem. You can say the carbon tax should be revenue neutral, like in BC. Let's do a cap-and-trade system as opposed to a carbon tax. So let's wait until we see what Donald Trump uh, was going to do, because we saw that argument last fall from uh, David Swan, liberal leader, saying let's wait and see what, what um, Trump does before we actually move ahead with climate action in Alberta and Canada. He has since said, okay, let's just keep pushing ahead with the carbon tax. He's not a big fan of the carbon tax, the way it's written in Alberta. Anyway, there's two different things here. They, they, they do intersect, but spending money, I think, $600,000 is not a lot of money to try and educate the public, and trying, and, to me, is a way of trying to counteract all the misinformation and deliberate misinformation we're seeing from various groups, including some of the wild rose MLAs. Here's
0: a question. So when I grew up in Australia, we had a lot in the Queensland public education system, uh, a lot of education about like, climate change and the hole in the ozone layer, which above Australia, obviously, was exceptionally large, which is why you burn into a crisp within 10 minutes, which is why I have cancer in my nose. Yay! So we learn about all this stuff all throughout primary school. Did that, was it ever a part of the education system here? Stuart, you're around my age.
1: Well, so. I think this is a really interesting thing is that, so I was born in 83 and we grew up with like Captain Planet and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if you would be Captain aware of that. Captain Planet. Yeah. And, but that was when, so when I was like seven or eight. Cartoons in, it, are great. <laughs> in those years, uh, the environment was not really a political issue the hole in the ozone I think it was Reagan who made all the big steps against acid rain and uh, Nixon started the EPA. And I I was uh,
0: terrified of acid rain as a kid. Yeah.
1: Well, it used to be a bigger deal. Yeah, And that is a good lesson because it was sort of a nonpartisan movement to to do these things. And
3: Brian Mulroney and Ronald Reagan, you know, by today's standards were, you know, environmental warriors. Yeah.
1: And then in the 90s, I mean, let's not beat around the bush here, but it is actually... Most of this is fueled by fossil fuel companies who started funding this kind of research and started funding uh, mostly Republican, but not just Republican, also Democrat politicians who would uh, argue their side of the issue, which is that this isn't a problem, don't worry about it. And uh, for example, ExxonMobil has a long history of doing this. And strangely, under Rex Tillerson, who's now Secretary of State, they actually kind of changed that. They came out in favor of a carbon tax about five years ago. Um, but that there's a long history of that. It became a political issue when these companies started to realize that this is going to really hurt our bottom line down the road. Now, we are in the situation we're at now where every time Graham writes about climate change, he gets a thousand emails telling him that he's an idiot and a dupe and, you know, he's in the pocket of big science or <laughs> something. I, tell, I say, Mom, stop <laughs> emailing me. <laughs> But it's I, I, that's a really fascinating thing, and it just shows you. I was listening to a scientist who was saying, "Look, we knew the effect of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere in the 19th century. This this isn't new science. We've we've gotten to the point now where we can track the actual effect on the Earth of these things happening. But the idea that gases in the atmosphere would cause the temperature to increase is not controversial, and it hasn't been controversial for like 150 years. And the the, the place we're at right now is just so absurd because half of the argument is completely not based on science. It's based on a, a large industry lobby which has been funding kind of pseudoscientific facts to go against climate science. So it
0: became basically incredibly political rather
1: than... Yeah. So uh, long story short, yeah, I did get some environmental education (laughs) in school. But (laughs) now that was a different time, though. Like, it was not controversial to do that then.
3: Yeah, but my daughter just graduated from high school in Alberta three years ago. And it was absolutely part of their science curriculum because it's absolutely true. I mean, the the, the issue becomes one of a public policy response. I mean, I've said before, I'm not a climate change skeptic, far from it. I'm a climate change fatalist. And, you know, what concerns me is that a lot of our climate change response in policy is what, you know, what the right likes to call virtue signaling. I mean, I can ride my bicycle to work you know, all spring, summer, and fall, it will not save one dang polar bear. The problem is that the kind of cataclysmic environmental change that we're seeing right now cannot be reversed with the kinds of modest lifestyle changes most North Americans are prepared to make. And nobody wants to admit that in order to legitimately stop the pace of climate change, we would have to retrench our lifestyles to something that is pre-industrial that most people simply won't accept. So you know, we go on... Uh, composting and riding our bicycles and putting in LED light bulbs and patting ourselves on the back for it, it's not going to make any difference. What we need legitimately are, are market signals that tell people in big industry that they have to invent a different technology because based on the technology that we have now, there is no lifestyle change that the average North American is prepared to make that will mitigate the impact of the climate change we're experiencing right now. We're not going to refreeze the ice cap apps uh with led christmas lights
1: i would actually disagree with that i i
0: can i just say paul that was incredibly depressing
3: (laughs) jesus
2: christ well she is a fatalist i noticed
1: i'll try and inject some optimism like paul is right that if we were to continue doing what we're doing with like a couple of people biking to work that would have no effect but if the market signals that paul talks about are things like a carbon tax and regulations and a move away from coal and you will notice that's all things that the NDB government is doing. Um, if that were sort of a worldwide movement, uh, and if you were to move towards more renewables, which I- I'm not even sure if we know that that's possible, but it there are people who will tell you it's possible, um, the carbon tax can then kind of chip away at your behavior. And when it chips away at your behavior, it makes you not use those fossil fuel um Things and then with that combined with renewable energy, you can actually get sort of a cocktail of different things happening that could keep us below two degrees warming, which is at this point, what is what's the term? Um, not unacceptable. <laughs> um, that would be that would be the point where less bad. Know, yeah, it's not catastrophic, and that I think that people need to realize that's what we're looking at right now. The the changes that are going to make bad things happen in the world are locked in already. We're talking about what kind of bad things, and what are how much is it going to cost us to mitigate those problems? But we're not; it's not catastrophic yet.
0: Okay, I, I'm wondering if this is just because you have a brand new baby, so you have to be an optimist because yeah. your kids like well, four months old, so you can't take Paula's point of view you know just what? yet. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm
3: not saying that we're all going to die as the water <sighs> as the waters rise. I mean, I actually have a fair bit of confidence that there will be that there will be a technological innovation because I think that we're a pretty uh, ingenious species. But I think that, you know, if we thought that if we all rode dog sleds to work tomorrow, that it would make one iota of difference to the pace of climate change, uh, we are deluding ourselves. We might feel better about it. And Stewart's right. I mean, we can be leaders here in our province of 4 million people. I think. I think this is the public policy debate, though, that i'd like to see conservative politicians engaging in instead of pretending that climate change isn't happening because it's happening. i mean i mean how can how can you how can you drive around canada and not notice that things are changing well the thing I mean, is
2: people are they're saying it's not caused by humans right so before they were denying it's even a change in the climate now they're saying yeah fine it's changing but it's not it's not people doing it it's just right. a natural cycle and, and I'm going to sell my shares in the dog sled company that I invested in. Well, <laughs> nah, I would,
3: I would like to travel to work by dog sled, and I would like to see, you know.
0: That would if, be amazing. If, if we dog- could have an Edmonton Journal, like, yeah, husky team.
2: And the thing is, just to, to follow up on my colleagues, uh, things I agree with both of them, you know, being an optimist and a fatalist. In other words, we could make a difference, but we won't. That's the thing. <laughs> it, it, because the thing is, if you know, if you want to um,
0: positivity training, with hey, there go. Thompson.
2: If you want to say <laughs> we shouldn't do anything, fine. You know that's not uh, the, to me. It's not a good answer. But don't do it with your eyes closed, thinking it's all a hoax. If you're going to say let's not do anything, then be aware there will be a price to pay. Maybe not today, but it will be down the road. There'll be all kinds of people. You'd look at you can you can argue some of the wars. Syria, for example, civil war is caused by climate change. There was a drought there for three or four years it drove people into the cities from the the, the countries and, it, and and it caused problems in the society. The Arab spring droughts caused um, uh, food shortages and the price t- to spike and someone set themselves on fire in protest and that could be tied and that led to the arab spring that led to um, upheaval that 's all based on on climate change you 'll see a lot more social upheaval. More in Europe when it, people start to become refugees, leaving Africa to head into to Europe. All kinds of problems, more strife, more war. There's a price to be paid down the road if we don't pay a price, a price. Now, the problem is people don't see that down the road. You can't convince them. You can't say them this will be the outcome because we don't know the actual outcome. We do know there's trends developing that are not good.
0: Well, that certainly cycled out of politics range. arranged, didn't so it? I,
2: I guess my fatalist, like Paula, don't think about it.
0: I want to switch gears now to the uh, alleged assault out at Elk Island Child and Youth Ranch. Paula, what happened there last weekend? Well,
3: I mean, this is a very disturbing story. The allegations are that two of the young residents at this group home, a boy of 14 and a boy of 15, are charged with the attempted murder of one of their youth workers, a woman in her 60s, who's not been identified by police. Uh, The thing that made this even more troubling was the news this week, which the CBC broke, that one of those uh, boys had been previously charged and subsequently convicted of uh, other assaults while in that same group home
0: He so, pled guilty didn't he? Yeah
3: he yeah. pled guilty this same week So uh, to me I mean the assault in and of itself is, is very disturbing An assault that rises to the level of attempted murder Suggests uh, you know, the allegations are of a, a, a great degree of violence here. But what really upset me is that this is not an isolated incident. Um, this is the fourth such case in 15 years, going back to a, a terrible murder in 2001, in which a youth worker uh, working alone with a disturbed young man of 14 was raped and murdered in Lethbridge. Uh, in 2011, Valerie Wolski, a care worker who was working with a 24-year-old youth who had aged out, of the child welfare system and was in the care of PDD, um, was strangled by that young man who um, never stood trial because he doesn't have the mental capacity to form the intent to murder. Um, And a year after that, in 2012, another youth worker, Diane McClements, also in her 60s, was uh, murdered by a 17-year-old young man. In her care, he's he um, he was convicted of that murder. He stabbed her. Um, court heard because he was upset that there wasn't enough of a selection of video games at the youth home. In all of these cases, we had women working alone um, while caring for uh, young men who were troubled and had a history of violence. And uh, so, I I find it deeply problematic. Uh, there have been fatality inquiries into two of those deaths. That we're still seeing this pattern of of incidents. And, you know, let it be said that charges have just been laid in the assault here. So there's certainly not a conviction, but the allegations are very much uh, a piece of what's happened in these previous three incidents.
0: Now, we were speaking with Danielle Larive yesterday, the um, newly installed Minister of Children's Services. She has since, uh, well, her ministry rather, has since put Elk Island under a conditional license. They're looking into what exactly happened there. Obviously, there are a lot of details to figure out and as she put it, you know, because this is a, a contracted service, it's an arm's length agency, it is tougher for her to find out exactly what happened there. But politically, what do you think there'll be much fallout here, Stuart, when it comes to the politics of arm's length agencies and, and these kind of incidents happening at them again and again?
1: I think it's really hard to say at this point, and this made me think a lot about... You know, I covered, um, I'm sure people in Edmonton who are listening to this will remember the shootings, the armed robberies at the Max stores about a year and a bit ago, and that was two men who died. I covered the funeral of one of the men uh, who died at one of those Max stores and then talked to an organizer um, who's sort of part of a project to get awareness out and maybe change some rules um, about lone workers. And she was extremely interesting because she was saying, we went into this thing thinking, There's some easy solutions here. We just need to get those done, and this will never happen again. So, for example, they said, well, you shouldn't have a lone worker. You should have two workers. They should be mandated to have two people in the store at any given time, especially at 3 a.m. But then, you know, the studies will tell you that what that generally means is that two people will die in an armed robbery as opposed to one person. And they have other um, ideas like why not put some bars on the windows, things like that. That what tends to happen there is you create kind of this aura, this idea that looks like a kind of a crimey place. It looks like a bad neighborhood. It actually encourages crime when you have bars on the windows. So they've been kind of, she said, everything that we thought going into it was sort of counterintuitive, and um, we we did a lot of education on this, and this, I think there are some, this is a different situation. There are some easier solutions here, but you know, i I, I covered the Valerie Wolski thing a little bit and that was Terrence Saddleback who was six foot five and 300 pounds it took five RCMP officers to restrain him in one incident and I think also some pepper spray so somebody like that it's really hard to guarantee safety in a situation that involves someone who has the mental capacity of a toddler and who out is bigger than everybody else around there, and who, in a rage, could probably take down three or four people. Never mind one lady who's five foot four and a hundred pounds. So the solutions here—I mean, we have to talk about facilities at that point because you have to have people on staff, you have to have enough people around. I don't imagine that Elk Island Youth Ranch has a very quick response time for the RCMP if they call for that. So I hope that people will sort of understand the complexity and how intractable some of these problems are because i mean we looked at the saddleback thing i think is an an incredible example of this because That was a guy who nobody wanted. And it's pretty clear from that fatality inquiry that they were bouncing him back and forth. People were trying to get rid of him. One doctor in particular was saying, we just can't have this guy here. And they actually broke some rules to get rid of him and put him off on uh, Valerie Wolski, who ended up paying the consequences for that. So I'm sure Paul will have something to say about this. But uh, I I think it is worth remembering that this is a really complicated problem. The political consequences, I don't think, are easy to say. Or even if there should be any, I think this is maybe just a problem we need to try and solve earnestly.
3: It is interesting because under the progressive conservatives, the government adopted this contracting out model for the provision of these kinds of services, whether it's group homes for adolescents or group homes for people with developmental disabilities. And the trouble with the contracting out model is that you lose track of accountability. And it was Mm. extraordinary to me when we were talking to Minister Larravie yesterday and Emma and I were, were right there. And she said, I said, well, was she working alone? And the minister said, I don't know. And I said, well, why don't you know? And she said, well, I haven't been able to get that information. And this is almost, you know, this four or five days after the assault. And what Larrabee said is that, well, this is, you know, this is a gray area. This is an arm's length agency. These people don't work for my department. And there is the inherent problem when we contract out all of these services, who is accountable when something goes wrong? And I think that Um, It is ironic and timely that we're in the middle of this child intervention panel, the all-party panel, which had its second meeting yesterday. And I think that it is important that this is one of the things that they do look at when they get to the second half of the panel's mandate, is to ask whether the contracting out model is still the model that we want to use or whether we need some variation on it.
1: I think it is worth saying, too, the more I thought about this, the more I thought whatever, I think Paul is exactly right, the, con- the contracting out is not working, but the solution to that would be incredibly expensive, I think, because it would mean round-the-clock facilities and lots more staff. So And, you know, and the,
3: and, and the ideology of the day is that facilities are bad. You know, we want to shut, you know, to, you know, the, the idea is that we don't want to institutionalize people. And of course, we don't want to institutionalize people en masse, but for some people, Uh, a more structured environment is safer for
1: everybody.
0: All right, let's switch gears to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery. Stuart, what do you got for us today, Tony?
1: Well, I'm still... I know I said this last week, but I'm going to go back to Donald Trump again because I just find the stories coming out of that administration are just riveting. And this is one on uh, Politico today, and the headline is Trump vexed by challenges, scale of government. And this is about a man who... I don't think has ever had a real job in his life before. Because I think when you inherit a company, you never have to sit down and like tweak a spreadsheet or anything like that. You just kind of have to make decisions. And this is about him grappling with the complexity of being president and how much genuine work that is. And I think not really enjoying it all that much, but it's a great read.
0: It's shocking that being president of the United States of America would be a lot of work. That's very surprising to me. Paula, do you have anything? I do.
3: It was a, a different kind of piece uh, from The Atlantic this week uh, by Phil Gallowitz, and it's about the oxycodone uh, uh, crisis in Kentucky, but it zeroes in on one particular county in Kentucky where the biggest businesses are the drugstores that dispense these drugs. And in this one small county, they dispensed uh, close to three million doses of Uh, last year, which was 150 doses for every man, woman and child in the county. And uh, the neighboring counties don't have a ratio like that. And what the story told me, which shocked me, is that one of the reasons for this problem is Obamacare. Because for the first time, people on Medicaid could get drug coverage. and. You know, we think drug coverage for the poor is an excellent plan. And it is if we're talking about chemotherapy drugs. It's not such a great plan if it's a bottomless pit of oxycodone. So a really... It's a really beautiful, disturbing story in the Atlantic this
0: week. Interesting. I'm going to take us to uh, BBC News magazine. It's a piece called A Sarcastic Response to Syria's Militants. And it's a fantastic read. So in Syria, there's a powerful jihadist group. They've banned music from the airwaves. So this is the story of one radio station manager. He thinks basically that's ridiculous. And he's pushing back against these IS militants with the sounds of goats and football chants. (laughs) It's quite a lovely read. Graham, what have you got for it? That's
2: a tough act to follow. <laughs> um, just to follow up on what I was talking about, um, <clears throat> the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the U.S. that report, there's actually a lot of things in the web right now, there's debate going on, but there's one, is a really good article um, in sciencemag.org, and it's, it's how a culture clash at NOAA led to a flap over a high profile warming pause study. And this is important. Because it just shows you how the people who are fighting against the reality of climate change are using ridiculous arguments to try and um, deflect attention from the reality of climate change to fighting among the scientists. In this case, the NOAA put out a report uh, a while ago saying that there is no pause, that the warming has continued. And this is a really important uh, report, but the US um, Republicans have been fighting against it. One of the scientists on the NOO, NOAA has said that he thinks that they rushed the report out, that they didn't archive the data properly. So you've got scientists arguing over handling of data. They all believe in the reality of climate change, but you've got now um, politicians in the U.S. saying, aha, the, the scientists can't agree among themselves. i got a lot of emails from people saying, aha, it's proven to be false. It's a hoax now, Thompson. Just do your homework. Scientists argue all the time about how they handle things. It doesn't mean... the nature of science, Exactly. (laughs) So this person was very strong in his his argument about the NOAA's um, report. The thing is, though, that report has been studied. The data has been studied in the last year or so by other scientists, and they're saying, you know something, that report is spot on. It's done a really good job to explain how the pause has not... Um, been a real thing and the global warming is continuing so to me it's an important issue because we're seeing politicians use it as an excuse not to take action
0: that was a very long explanation of your goodreads
2: okay i can, I can go on some more if no like. no that's fine
3: <laughs> thank you Graham. bring on the goat noises
0: bring on the goat noises <laughs>
2: <laughs> you, you shouldn't encourage her
0: thanks for joining us everyone Stuart. Paula, Graham and Sean Butts here filming some of this so we can put it up on EdmontonJournal.com. Listening so patiently.
2: (laughs) We're assuming he listens.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you can find this episode of the Press Gallery at TheEdmontonJournal.com. You can also subscribe to iTunes, TuneIn Radio and our SoundCloud channel. Hope that you join us again this time next week at the Press Gallery.